Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, highly political advertising. The Guardian has been criticised for publishing an advert that compared Hamas to child killers. The Times turned it down. Which one was right? Scottish independence. With a referendum just around the corner, and with implications for the whole of the UK, have TV channels south of the border given the issue enough coverage? And interactive telly. BBC Three has now broadcast its first interactive drama with viewers able to make decisions for the main characters and change the direction of the programme. Is this the future of TV, and what does it mean for the industry? Media Focus. Well, as usual, we're joined by two of the media's best and brightest. Tony Chernside is a media technologist and well-known for pioneering lots of new technology at the BBC. And Indra Adnan, columnist, psychotherapist and founder of the Soft Power Network. Should newspapers publish highly political adverts? The Guardian has defended its decision to print an advert which compared Hamas to child killers. It says the acceptance of an ad, quote, does not equate to support or endorsement for the views expressed in it. The Times had already rejected it as it thought it would cause concern among its readers. So, Tony, do newspapers need to be mindful of political sensitivities when accepting adverts, or do you think they should just avoid running them altogether? Well, this one's interesting, because The Guardian actually ran an article criticising The Times for not publishing that advert, which I kind of thought was an interesting play from The, from the Guardian's point of view. But newspapers are, are inherently political things. There's a need um, and importance for, for them to be aware of the implications of the adverts that they carry um, and they need to maintain editorial independence for the news if they want to satisfy their audience and their readership. My concern with it was was about the political nature of the advert. It was more, um, is the advertisement legal? Is it honest? Is it truthful? Is it decent? And and they're very different questions to, is it, is it a political advert? And, and the newspapers at the moment are in a difficult environment and you uh, mean financially financially yeah, yeah. the business urge there to actually take the money is is quite strong it, it's it's if they if they have a if there is a ban on political adverts in, in newspapers full stop it, it, it presents another problem for them another business problem for them in that sense um, and also to defining exactly what a political advert is isn't going to be a very straightforward thing to do anyway indra clearly it was legal otherwise they they, they wouldn't have run it do you think that they did the right thing the whole issue is really fraught with, you know, needing to go deeper into the problem. I mean, I had to, like you, Tony, I had to go and look up the ad. I don't read um, physical newspapers anymore. And um, in fact, on the occasion of getting your um, query, I went out and bought a newspaper and looked at the impact of an ad on a reader. And actually, it's quite shocking. You know, what? now that I'm reading, you know, online papers all the time, I forget the impact of an ad in a physical newspaper. And um, I tried to imagine the impact of that ad on me as a reader. And it was um, powerful. You know, what, what is happening in reality is that somebody is able to pay for an image to be shown in whatever size you require to the public. And that is, that's quite an interesting um, form of power. You know, I mean, I, I'm tempted to call it soft power, but it's not really soft power. It's almost hard power because it's zapping the reader with a chosen image. And the reader can't get away, in fact. So I, I don't think that any um, discussion about its legality or the cost argument uh, is, going to, is going to touch my reasoning at all, because I think those are secondary to the fact of what is being achieved 
by this advertisement. I think The Guardian absolutely knows that, which is why most of the stuff that they've been talking about is an issue of whether or not uh, they can remain neutral as a news organisation. And so the whole issue of neutrality comes up. Um, and for me, I, I think neutrality in any news organisation is, is just an illusion. And I'm quite sure that The Guardian, when they decided to go with this argument, knew that they were coming down on the side of one side over the other. I think the same for the New York Times and I think probably the same for the Times. They were, you know, making a decision who to allow in this case. I think that they then backtracked and said, no, that's not the case. That's not why we did it. But I think once it's a sort of fait accompli, they've allowed that image to be shown. They've allowed the power of that argument to be given. And so they've allowed that argument to be made. And I think the anger from the other side is that they couldn't compete with that. You know, what in terms of finances? I don't not, know whether it's able... finances or whether it's in terms of they haven't mastered, you know, they haven't got the power of the image that they haven't managed to do that, and but they feel caught short. They feel on their back foot as a result of that ad, and I think that's just a fact. But there's there's a decision to be made still in yeah. either running or not running, yeah. and that if that's no longer a legal decision, that becomes mm -hmm. a political decision. Yeah. So whichever way you go, yeah. There's, there's a bias. I mean, isn't there an argument to be made that at least The Guardian took a legal advert that someone paid for in the sense that a, a newspaper might take an advert for a pot of yoghurt? I mean, The Times, in effect, censored the advertiser because they mm -hmm. refused to take an advert which was legal in this country and for which they were paying cash money. No, I don't think so, because if that was the case, they wouldn't even have had the discussion. They would have just printed it. They came down on the side of, if I'm understanding it correctly the effect it would have on their readers, that, yeah. which I think is raising a different issue. So they didn't um, challenge The Guardian on their own terms. They raised other terms. Yes, and they I think said that, that because the enough. image was so disturbing yeah. that they didn't actually want to upset yeah. their readers, which yeah. is a... Um, I mean, do you think that that was their, their intent? Do you think that was their sole reason for doing it? Or do you think they didn't want the furore of... Um, of causing because clearly the you know Middle East Palestine is a, is a huge hotbed at the moment in terms of media debate. Do you think mm. they just wanted to move away from that? Again, this is such a massive issue. Mm. Um, the terms of the debate are very very important at the moment. For example, and I know it's a very very hot potato, but the issue, for example, so many people feel really um, unable to contribute to the debate at all about what's happening in Gaza because they can't find the right way to express what they're thinking and feeling without falling foul of the current you know, dangers of looking as if they're coming down on one side or the other. Mm. And so, in, in effect, that's also a kind of censorship. It's become too difficult. But, Tony, it is difficult for editors to make these decisions. I mean, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, who do you think made the right decision? And then we've got, for example, the editor of the Jewish Chronicle recently apologised to his readers because um, many of them were outraged that a humanitarian appeal for the, the, the people in Gaza, was an advert was run. So that clearly there's a, a strong tension here that, that's been here for years, but it seems to be really in the current media focus at the moment in terms of advertising versus editorial independence and their independence from one another. Uh, yes, and I think certainly with the newspapers, it's, it's about editorial, or at least about the perception of editorial independence for these different papers. And did either of them get it right? Did either of them get it wrong? They both have clearly thought about quite carefully the the decision that they've made and it's not no one's kind of made a mistake in mm. that sense they've well, both they have quite different readers don't they and they've got very different audiences they've got very different political agendas as we say actually all newspapers are have a political stance and they all have a political agenda 
and the ads they're just another part of the, the newspaper really and you know stories are political and their columns that they carry are, are highly opinionated so i think it's difficult to kind of stand up and say well these these guys got it wrong these guys got it right because they both kind of went through a process and made a decision they've got different readers they've got different political agendas didn't this advert get one of the biggest responses they've ever had i don't know if they do know their readers that well next has there been enough coverage of the scottish referendum in england wales and northern ireland it's less than a month before scotland goes to the polls to decide whether they want to stay part of the uk a high-profile STV debate between Alex Salmond and Alistair Darling was not shown south of the border, as ITV wanted to show regular programming instead. It was offered online, but STV didn't anticipate the scale of demand, and the website inevitably crashed. So, Indra, was ITV right to assume that viewers south of the border are not really that interested? <laughs> I, I think I have a, quite a unique perspective on this, because I have a lot of family in Scotland, and yet I'm not Scottish myself. Well, in fact, I do have an eighth Scottish in my blood, so... Uh, a great love of Scotland. Yeah, I felt cheated, I think, over the past couple of years in particular, that the debate hasn't been shared with us down south. I do understand the position that it's a Scottish vote. And I did at one point, you know, try to make a call for the, all of us having a vote because I felt that it impacted the whole of the UK. Um, but I was one round on that one. And I do understand it's a Scottish, it's a Scottish vote. It's their choice whether to be independent or not. Um, and what's happened instead is that in these last few you know, months before the, the vote, um, the people down south of the RUK, as we're charmingly described as, um, have been moved to make huge gestures you know, to sort of show the Scottish people how much they love them and how much they don't want them to go. And they look very mawkish now because, it's, in a way, all that's been left you know, for them to do to express some sort of dismay at something happening that they didn't see coming at all. I think a lot of people have taken for granted the beauty of this relationship, and now um, it's on the line, and there's very little they can do about that. And that's just sad, in a way, for, for those of us who want to express nothing other than love and respect for Scotland. I mean, just before mm. I bring Tony in, could I just ask you one further question, Indra? Do you think the media has been responsible largely for this kind of type A alpha male narrative, you know, Alex versus Alistair and everyone's beating their chest? Will there be a currency union? Will there not? It seems to be, every side seems to be laying on demands. And it, for me personally, I'd like Scotland. I'd love to remain a part of the union, but it's only a kind of heart thing, not a head. If, if the people of Scotland vote to be independent, then that's fine as well. We can still all be friends. It's, it, it's not really that big a deal for me, really. Really, whatever the verdict is, is fine by me. But to me, it just seems to an element of quite a lot of rancour seems to enter the debate. It has. And I've had to think very hard about that, why that's happened. Um, I don't think we can blame the media in an objective sense, you know, the, as if the media set out to, to create this. I think, if I'm honest, that, and I, I don't think that the, the Yes campaign would disagree with me, that it's, it's part of the plan. You know, it's part of the plan to create a clear choice for their voters. Tony, you're, you're from the north of England like my good self. Do you feel that the media have given you enough information? Because this will affect us just as much as them. Fundamentally, there's, there's less impetus for the media south of the border to cover the story because, obviously, south of the border there isn't a vote. So all of the pressure for media coverage, all of the PR and all of the campaigning is happening in Scotland. They're the, they're the people with the, with the vote. The, the, what I've seen of the no campaign is calling on the, the the rest of the UK to kind of to to reach out to people in Scotland and make gestures to people in Scotland use social media and what have you to try and 
you know, increase the love of, of, of England. And it's hard. F- the thing I would be interested in is, is understanding a bit more about what, what actual impact it's going to have. And I, and I, sh- I should imagine this, the same is true of most, most people in the UK. It's like, what, dif- what difference does this a- actually make to me, e- even though I don't have a say in it? And do you think the media have failed in their duty to inform you as a citizen, as a reader, as a consumer of media, as to what the implications may or may not be? Thanks to the to the internet, if, if I I guess if I if I really cared enough, I could have gone out <laughs> and find found the answers to all these questions. But now the truth comes out now. But not having a say that damages the the motivation there to do it because I don't. What what difference can I make really? So the media's lack of motivation south of the border reflects. In fact, they've, well, they've called it right. It reflects the populace's lack of motivation. It, it, yeah, and it's it's my lack of motivation, I guess, because I do, because I don't have a vote in this, and because. Um, I don't have family north of the border, so it's not it's not it's something that I that is it's difficult for me to kind of really understand what difference it's going to make to me. Indra, do you think the media does have a duty to inform citizens of massive potentially political upheavals? I think in this case it does, and I think it's quite interesting to imagine that if they win uh, a yes in September, you know, it may take us ten or fifteen years to work that out. You know, what the impact was. Or we could have really looked at that impact now. That's a, that's a discussion but, but we haven't my, my had here. My problem with that is that, that what, what impact? Yeah, but see, that's it. You, you, you don't know. So is that, is that decision of uh, STV to go it alone and stream it reminiscent of the whole debate? In a way, everything echoes itself, isn't it? It's always, you know, one, one thing always just, you know, is just more evidence of, the, of, the, of, the, of what thinking is going on. I'm actually very torn. There's something to me extremely attractive about what Yes is offering. Yes, me too. Um, I love the politics. I love the politics that has been generated. Absolutely. Um, Getting rid of Trident. There's so many, so many positive reasons. Yeah, and but the pain is, is that we, you know, we on the left and in 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 the rest of the UK totally agree with all their aims. Yeah, and the irony is, so it's very painful to be painted as being against that. Because we're, we're as disconnected from situation. Westminster as, yeah. as people in Scotland. The whole thing's, yes. you know, yeah. incredibly uh, yeah. uh, unworkable, really. And we yeah. feel that pain just as much as the Scottish people. Yeah. I often say with my Scottish friends, perhaps if they declare independence, they could take us with them, you know, <laughs> and just leave Westminster. Redraw the border yeah, exactly. five. <laughs> exactly. But I do hope that whichever way it goes, whatever's been generated there in Scotland will continue. Because I can see a lot of people south of the border wanting to link up with that energy, link up with that new language, new way of doing politics it's a bit like watching what happened with obama a few years ago you know it's like a new people's politics that has that has arisen because it is independent of westminster because it has managed to step outside of the of politics as normal um and we'd like that to continue well this is the problem with incredibly interesting topics they always tend to uh, fill up the table and we'll have to move us on if that's okay because we we do have one final topic which tony i think you might want to speak about is interactive tv the future of entertainment media BBC Three has broadcast its first interactive TV show. The programme, based on the channel's popular war drama Our War, lets viewers take decisions for the main characters, changing the direction and indeed the ending of the show. This is only the latest in a series of new formats trialled by the BBC and other broadcasters, including perceptive media, where the programme changes according to the viewers' demographics, like their location, age and gender. Perceptive media was, of course, invented by none other than Tony himself, so Tony... Is this just a bit of fun, or do you think there's a real future for this? I, I think it's a lot of fun, um, but I do think there's a future in it. Obviously, it's, it's, I've been doing it for for some time, and it's um, it, you know it's a, a motivated to try and um, take the technological 
advancements that we have today and change the way that television works fundamentally. So I think it's an important thing and will change the way that the way that television programmes are made and the way television programmes are consumed by the audiences. I mean, I personally, when I, when I kind of binge watch my, my DVDs and my box sets, I, the only action I want to do is to just reach into the popcorn bucket. I want to sit there and be entertained. I, I want zero level of interaction. Am I unusual in that regard? Uh, not at all, no. I think people have made this mistake before they've got up on stage and announced that the linear television and the sit-back experience is dead. And, and that, that, that's a really naive... Oh, it has a name. It's called the sit-back experience. Sit, well, it's kind of lean-forward, lean-back. Yeah. So you're, you're lean-back, you can imagine you're sitting back, you've, you've got your Breaking Bad and you're watching the whole thing start to finish. Um, whereas the lean-forward is much more, I want to interact with this. And that kind of represents the the range of, of ways of interacting with, with content, whether it's completely sit-back, whether there is some interaction. I mean, interactive TV... As, as many people understand it, it's a red button, or, or there are four buttons of which you can choose, and fundamentally, a lot of the time, all you're doing is choosing to change the channel to watch something else, or changing the audio track, or what have you. So interactivity can range from that, from turning a television on is an interaction, right through to completely immersive gameplay of the type that you might have on games consoles. So it's a wide range, and as I said, it would be a mistake to stand up and announce that the death of, of linear broadcast television um, because so many people watch it and so many people enjoy it. And when you talk to, to certain demographics, they will, they will say that they're not interested in, in interactivity. And, and really, perceptive media is, is a response to, to that because perceptive media is kind of inspired a little by responsive um, web design when you um, create um, create web content and reformat it re-render it re-represent it perhaps even change the content slightly depending on the device that's being used to access the, the web page so perceptive media is kind of us looking at the technology and i, I need to credit ian forrester who who uh, kind of worked on this with me it's a it's a look at how stories were told before broadcasting kind of got in the way really it was it was face to face and it was reactive and um it's like i'm talking to you now i'm changing the way that i communicate with you and i'm i'm adapting the story i'm telling you now based on the kind of inputs that you're providing me and it's looking at the technology and going well can technology do that now broadcasting kind of got in the way as this wall that's put up between the audience and the producers and the storytellers and people are kind of throwing stuff over the fence and they are getting feedback, but it's kind of delayed. It used to be very delayed. Now you can kind of use social media and, and, and digital kind of two-way comms to get a bit more information a bit more immediately. But still, there's, there's this wall in the way, there's this barrier in the way. And IP and, and online distribution, if we can harness the technology and answer quite a few other questions, problem questions, um, perceptive media is about what happens when content can do what I'm doing now with you and looking at you and, and, and looking at how your body language and how you're reacting and changing what I'm saying, changing the pace and the depth that I go into. Can, can, can media do that? Can we, can we make a television programme or a radio programme that does that? Indra, is this witchcraft? <laughs> no, unfortunately it's not. I mean, I say unfortunately because 
and let, let, let me just make a, a quick caveat here. I'm, you know, I'm I'm very pro the technological revolution, so pro it that I'm, you know, I'm accused of being very Pollyanna about it. You know, it's like, it's it, everything's to come. I'm very excited about what's coming. So I've been trained to look at the other side. You know, I have to keep, you know, I've, I've developed a new knee-jerk reaction to look at the other side and say, right, what's it on the other side of this? Uh, and I see quite a lot on the other side, I have to say. I mean, from a psychotherapeutic point of view, I'm slightly worried about that that level of, you know, it's not a video game. World War One can't, in my mind, can't be reduced for a video game. You can have video games, which are video games. What's the difference between being allowed to do that with a documentary and doing that with a with a computer game? You know, with with children in particular, there has a there's a there's a learning process, isn't it? Everything is in a way, whether you intend it or not, is educational. They're learning from what they're doing. Can I ask Tony, how might it manifest itself then, say a year or two down the line when it's kind of bedded in, what applications might this have? Just to kind of clarify, if we're talking about interactive television, I was at a a really interesting session at Sheffield Documentary Festival um, earlier in the year um, about computer games and um, if there are topics that that should be off, um, off the table in terms of making computer games. And the panel were very open to computer games being allowed to explore in, in a documentary-like way. So taking real um, war situations, challenging situations, even current war situations, and trying to explore and provide information and provide context and to put people into that, into that situation. I guess the, the question is, how, how is that different from, from, a, from a documentary? The difference is the illusion that you could do something or experience it the way it was experienced. But doc- documentaries, the construction techniques of documentaries are designed to do that anyway. It's all handheld camera. It's yes, a but lot you're, lo- first, you're looking at person. You're yeah. looking through someone's someone's eyes. So it's but is, you isn't that, that person isn't that person a, a responsible curator, as it were? Isn't that when you buy a newspaper or you trust the BBC documentary producer that they're going to look at certain events through a lens and. Of course, they're going to cherry pick certain things and place emphasis on others. That's why you you trust that lens, as it were. And if we hand that to, I mean, I'm all for this. I'm just trying to think of how it might work. If you then sometimes, if I if I don't know anything about an issue, I want to be taken by the hand and led through the topics by and the issues. And and, and I don't think computer games don't do that. Certainly, the World War One drama. I, I know the guys who put it together, and this was about trying it's, it is a learning it's a learning thing it's not about a game that you can kind of go in and play a bit it's not it's not designed like that it's about trying to give an impression or put you in a position and understand that choices faced by these people at that time were just impossible it's the situation mm-hmm. was just impossible it didn't really matter what you do you're put in this situation and and there's there's nothing really that you can you can do about it it definitely i think was designed as a as a as, as a learning experience rather than just entertainment. How would it work in terms of uh, drama, in terms of storytelling? So, for example, now when you watch a television programme or a film, there's a beginning and a middle and, and an end. It's a linear experience. You have that kind of sit-back uh, approach, as you mentioned. I would feel quite stressed out if I had to choose whether the captain stayed port or starboard halfway through the film because one might end up in certain death, the other one won't. Well, that might be the game mechanic, but... For certainly for perceptive media to, to to kind of bring it back around to that, it's not necessarily about interactivity, and it's not necessarily about giving the audience interactivity and the ability to to make those decisions or to choose which path this story takes. It's about 
um, a, an extra tool set for the storyteller to be able to get around the fact that there's this broadcasting barrier in between them and the audience. And it's about if if, if you talk to storytellers and say, okay, well, you, this is you 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 know the story that you want to tell. If you're telling it to this person in this context at this time, would you change it if those things were different? Would you tell your story differently in a different circumstance? And 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 the the answer is almost always yes. There are little things, it reminds or me, big things that I change. It reminds me of when I had Ghostbusters on VHS because there was a lot of swearing in that. But whenever you used to watch it on afternoon ITV, it was the same scene. And rather than just dub it over, they'd obviously reacted the same scene without the swear words. And, that, and that's a, that's a kind of a, a clear. It, there are a couple of clear applications where there, there is there is a, a probably an easily arguable benefit to it. Um, what what I've been looking at is how rather than shooting it twice or or massively increasing the burden on production, the cost of production, is there a way of adapting production workflows to allow you to make this content without doubling the cost of being able to do it like that? And th- those are the questions that there aren't really answers to yet. That, that's the kind of R&D bit, really. The other big question I had about this whole issue is that is the question of who you are interacting with. So... Um, if I'm right in saying that as this progresses, you will need to have the right sort of um, set, the right sort of um, bit of technology in your home to be able to do this. And there's somebody on the other end, isn't there, of this interaction who, and I know this is a big issue, and I just wondered what your view on this was. You know, aren't you putting a piece of machinery in your home, which effectively is, you know, is capable of knowing everything about you and learning everything about you, in fact, capable of spying on you? Without you being able to put any, um, um, you won't be able to put any sort of limits on what on on that. That th- isn't that the current worry about this. I, I think that's mm. a, a really interesting mm. question, you, and you kind of you've already got one of those in your pocket, those devices, and you know if you're using Google, for I example, all sorts of bits off. You, you, yeah. yeah, so so you, you can switch bits of it off, but some bits are very difficult to mm, know how yeah. to switch off. They mm. really kind of hide that mm. somewhere and don't really tell you about it very much. So. You kind of already have that problem, mm. and I think it's very difficult to see how it's going to s- stop. How that, if you see that as a problem, and I can understand that viewpoint completely, if people are aware of this. I mean, we've done we've done a couple of trials of this uh, perceptive content, but we've been very careful about what happens, and and all of this kind of sensing data that's used to adapt the story has happened in in your computer and not gone anywhere else it's remained locally in your house but there is a value to that data and there are risks of of that would need to be managed about how that that data is used but these devices that that, that spy on you in your house they exist already Mm. They're already there. In fact, it's a fascinating... The implications of this technology are fascinating. I think we could do a couple of podcasts on this just alone. But unfortunately, guys, we have run out of metaphorical tape. We record digitally, but I always say we're running out of tape uh, because we we have the attention span of the average podcast listeners about 30-odd minutes. So, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. But, Tony, uh, do you... How can people follow you on Twitter and how can they learn more about what you're doing? Oh, uh, well, I'm on Twitter just as at Tony Chernside. So, follow me there. Tweet me there. Disagree with everything I've said there. That's and fine. is there a website where people can look into the, this work that you're doing? Um, it's so fascinating. BBC R and D have a website, and there's a blog on there. Also, Ian Forrester's on Twitter, and we're, I'm probably arguing with him. He's on there as uh, Cubic Garden. So you know, follow both of us, and you'll see us arguing about. <laughs>
the future. Excellent. Arguing about the future. Indra, how do people follow you on Twitter? What's your website, etc.? Right, Twitter, I'm at Indra Adnan. And um, I do a wide variety of things, as you can probably tell. So, yeah, it just comes under that banner. Um, but if you're interested in soft power, there's the soft power network. Softpowernetwork.com. Come and meet us there. And for those that want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard. You can go to our website, leave your email address and get updates whenever there's a new podcast. The website address is www.mediafocus.org.uk. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. <laughs> Big Things!